Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to continue our study there this evening. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. We have many ways of saying that a person's words do not align with his actions. He is all talk, we might say, or he is all bark and no bite. Of a boastful athlete, we could say he talks a big talk, but his game does not back it up. Or we might speak about a politician saying that he makes promises that he does not keep. Why do we have so many cliché phrases to describe this phenomenon? Perhaps it is because we see it so frequently in our world. By nature, we are proud creatures, but we are also weak. We overestimate ourselves, thinking we are more deserving and more capable than we are. Eventually, reality smacks us in the face with a two-by-four. The Christian life should be different. We have seen in this letter that John has much to say about those who make big claims, those who say that they have fellowship with God and that they know God, while they live in a way which calls these boasts into questions. So also he tells us that Christians are those who make these claims with their lives. More specifically, we show that we are Christians by the things that we do and the things that we confess. In the text before us this evening, we see this as the Apostle John emphasizes the consistent practice of the Christian life. In a phrase, Christians practice righteousness. And so if you found your place in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, would you follow along with me as I read to verse 10? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brothers. Father in heaven, we come before you this evening knowing that it is not within us to produce the kind of life that you call us to in this passage. And yet, we also know that we do not need for it to be within us, for it is your promise that you will work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. And that means we know, O oh Lord, that to practice righteousness is a gracious gift that you give us. And so we pray, O oh Lord, as we come to your word, that you would work in our hearts and work in our minds to make us practitioners of righteousness. Make us like your Son, the Righteous One. Make us like you, our Heavenly Father, who is righteous and pure and holy in all that you do and say. Make us to live as children of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the text before us elaborates on the final two verses 
of chapter 2. So let me remind you of what they say. Here in chapter 2, verse 28, we read, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here in those two verses, we see the three essential ideas that John is going to elaborate in this text. As he shows us what it means and what it looks like to practice righteousness, he connects this idea of practicing righteousness to abiding in Christ, to being born of God, and to Christ's appearing. There in verse 29, he was pointing forward to his second coming, to his future appearing. But here in chapter 3, verse 4 and following, he's going to speak about both his past appearing, that is his first advent, and his future appearing. Nevertheless, these same three ideas are what bring this passage together and show that what we're seeing in verse 4 and following is an elaboration of what we saw in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 2. In that context, then, the, the, the three verses we considered last week were something like a parenthesis in John's thought. That is, John said at the end of chapter 2 that the one who practices righteousness has been born of him. And as if he was taken up with this thought, he had to stop and reflect and praise the Lord and thank the Lord and simply stand in awe of the love that God has shown us that we should be called his children. But here in verse 4 then, he closes that parenthesis as it was and he takes up the idea again and seeks to elaborate on this basic command that we ought to abide in Christ and upon this idea that those who practice righteousness are born of him. Now, recently I shared some parts of this text with a friend in an effort to encourage him. I wanted to remind him that our present challenges pale in comparison to our future glory as God's children. Nevertheless, as my friend read on in this text, he wrote back to me and remarked about verse 6 of chapter 3, and he said, that is one of the bleakest verses in the New Testament. And I understand why he felt that way. Perhaps some of us feel that way. You see, if I read a few different translations, you might see why this verse hits so hard. Let me read a, a few. The Christian Standard Bible reads this way, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Similarly, the new King James, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, at first blush, those two translations leave us with the, uh, the sense that John is saying that Christians will never sin, that Christians will cease from sin. Of course, we know that that would be a contradiction of things that John has already said. And remember, a principle that I gave you some weeks ago, John is not stupid. He does not forget what he has written a few sentences prior. John knows and has declared and has said that the Christian is in fact a person who has sin in his life. We only need to look back to the first chapter in 1 John 1, 8 and 9 to see this. There he wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That statement implies that the Christian is a person who has sin. He must confess his sin. 
He must come before a holy and righteous God as a confessor of sin in order to be cleansed and forgiven of his sin. And that's not just something that's past. That's something that is ongoing, a present reality in the Christian's life. How then are we to reconcile these verses here, this particular verse in verse 6 of chapter 3, with what we read there in chapter 1? Well, consider a couple more translations. You heard what I read from the English Standard Version in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Similarly, the New International Version reads, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Very similar to the ESV there. And the New American Standard says, No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Now, these translations add words that are not present because of the way that our language works. English does not represent ongoing, continual action very well with a single word. And so we bring in other words that help the verb to say what we want to say when we want to express something that we are doing as an ongoing pattern and practice in our lives. We need those helping words like keeps on or continually or continues in. Greek, on the other hand, can express these ideas with a single word. And that's what John is doing here. We can see that distinction throughout his letter. He's speaking of a distinction between discrete realities, distinct realities, and ongoing realities in the Christian life. It is a distinct reality that Christians sin. We are those who have sin, and therefore, as an ongoing reality in our life, we must be those who confess our sin. Similarly, John in the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 1 and 2, wrote, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John was dealing with a church that was racked by difficulties that we've spoken about in weeks prior. And one of the chief problems that challenged them was that there were people who left the church, false teachers who left the church, and were denying the reality of sin in their lives in some way. And in this denial, they were also calling people to follow them to pursue a life that was not consistent with God's word, not consistent with what God declares to be righteous. They denied that they had sin in their lives. They denied the category of sin as the Bible defines it. These were people that were causing problems within this church. And so John is rightly reframing the way in which these people think about sin. But of course he reminds them that as an ongoing reality in our life, our hope is not in our ability to keep ourselves unstained from sin. Our hope is in the one who cleanses us from all the stains of our sin. And so he pointed their attention there at the beginning of chapter 2 to the one who has an ongoing reality is our advocate with the Father. He is the one who made propitiation. That is, he turned away the wrath of God against us so that we no longer face the wrath of God for our sins. In that sense, we are not characterized by our sin because we have been cleansed, we have been forgiven by faith in the one who is our propitiation, by faith in the one who is our advocate. 
That's the context in which John writes, and that's the reality that he has asserted and will assert again and again. And we must understand this verse, then, in that context. So when we see what's going on in verse 6, that John is declaring a, an ongoing reality, the, the act of continuing in sin, or, or keep, keeping on in sin, you see, what we see, then, is that John is not so much saying that Christians will never sin, but that Christians will not embrace a life of wanton wickedness. Christians will not be those who make it the pattern and practice of their lives. They rather will be those who are marked by a continual pattern whereby they confess their sins before God and they assert their faith in the the finished work of Christ. And they look to Him in faith and they turn from those sins and seek to pursue the things that he shows us and declares to us to be righteous. And they fall again. And they continue that pattern of confession and repentance, of faith towards God, and of the pursuit of righteousness in their lives. That's the pattern of the Christian life. And that's how we need to understand this phrase, keeping on sinning versus practicing righteousness. There, it's literally the doing of righteousness. One who is making righteousness as kind of as their vocation, as the work that they do in their life as a regular habit. That is the mark of the Christian life. Not judged by a standard of perfection, but evaluated by the direction and pattern of our lives. And so with this in mind, John then gives us reasons that should encourage us. He gives us bases that should serve to encourage us as we face the various difficulties that we face in this life, because we must remember that John is dealing with a particular context that would have caused these Christians to doubt that they were, in fact, on the right path. The false teachers, again, in challenging them, in calling them to reject one way and turn to another way, would have sowed seeds of doubt in their mind, making them think, maybe I'm not really righteous. Maybe the things that I'm doing, the things that I'm practicing, the things that I'm pursuing, that's not really righteousness at all. Maybe there's another path that I need to go down. Maybe I don't really know God. Maybe I don't really have fellowship with Him. That would be suggested in their minds by these other false teachers. So John is going to give them reasons for encouragement as he shows them that this practice of righteousness that they have learned and that they continue in is the peculiar mark of the Christian that proves the reality of their relationship to God the Father. And so he begins with this statement, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This statement should hit us like a brick in the face. We have seen that John recognizes that Christian sin and sin will be forgiven. But there is always a temptation to surrender to sin in our lives because we think it's not a big deal or we think it's impossible to do anything about it. We think that it is a little thing or it is a reality that we simply must accept and learn to live with in our lives. We stop fighting. We give up. We stop confessing. We stop trusting in what Christ has done, and instead we begin to presume upon the grace of God apart from what Christ has done for us. That is always a temptation 
in the Christian's life. And so very easily we can slip into a dangerous place in which we stop doing those things that typify the pattern of the Christian life. So John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why should that hit us like a brick in the face? Because of that word lawlessness. It has stronger connotation than the word sin. It's one that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus speaks about judgment, he speaks about judgment coming upon those who are lawless. And when he condemns the hypocritical Pharisees, he refers to them as lawless. Again, in 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the coming Antichrist, he refers to him as the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness had a stronger connotation that communicated something that was going to incur the wrath of a holy God. So John is saying that practicing sin, making sin the pattern, the settled pattern of your life, that is practicing lawlessness. For sin is lawlessness. So this should hit us like a two by four, like a brick in the face, because it calls us to wake up if we're sliding into that sense where we think it's all right. It doesn't really matter what I do in this life. God is gracious, and so I'll just keep living however I want to live. That's a sign. That's a sign that we haven't really been born of God, as we'll see. It's a sign that we are among those who practice lawlessness, and therefore we face a certain judgment. So lest we think that sin is not serious, John would have us see it for all that it is. Now, he doesn't simply speak to us with words of condemnation. It's not his purpose to simply make us feel really, really bad. He wants to see us flourish as followers of Christ. And so he's going to move on in his argument from this point to show us a different way, a better way, by showing us the peculiar marks, namely the one peculiar mark, practicing righteousness, flows from the reality of what Christ has done, of who Christ is, and who we are in Him. Or to put it another way, he reminds us of three truths. That the sinless one appeared to take away sins. That the righteousness that he gives is the fruit of abiding in him because he is righteous. And that righteousness is evidence that we have been born again. So first, first reminder, the sinless one appeared to take away sins. John says in verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And again in verse 8, in the second half of verse 8, he says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now earlier I said that when John spoke about the, speaks here about the appearing of Christ, he is looking back to his incarnation. But I also suggest that he's looking forward. And this is what I mean. Primarily it seems that the idea is to look back to what Christ came to accomplish when he first came. And here we recall the words that John wrote when he recorded the words of another John, John the Baptist, who looked at Christ and saw him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here John says, When he appeared, he came to take away sin. And we know and have seen in this letter that the way in which he takes away sin is first 
by taking away the power of sin through the, his atoning death and the forgiveness that it grants to us. And second, by taking away the presence of sin in our lives by cleansing and purifying his people. We read in chapter 1 that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. That it washes away that stain. And we sung, sang about that this evening as we sang from the Psalter. Words from Psalm 51. Christ's blood cleanses us from our sin. In that way, he takes away the presence of sin. And he continues to take it away also as he purifies us, as he conforms us to his image by giving us the spirit, that, want, that anointing that John spoke about in chapter 2. And by reminding us of the hope that we have in him. We saw that last week, that everyone who hopes in his appearing purifies himself as he is pure. One of Christ's works, in fact, a chief work and reason why he appeared was to take away sin. Ultimately, this looks forward to his final appearing when he will finally and fully take away sin. For at that, on that day, he will destroy the devil with his works. So John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a work that he began, and it's a work that he will finally accomplish when he appears again. So being reminded of this, that the sinless one appeared to take away sins, we recognize that those who are in him and those who have trusted in him ought to be marked by a commitment to the pattern of life that would be consistent with following the one who came to take away sins. And so when we look at our lives and if we see that God is causing us to grow in righteousness, even though we grow in righteousness slowly and imperfectly, we can see that as evidence that encourages us, that shows us that indeed, yes, God is working in our lives. Because if Christ came to take away sins... And he's doing it in me. He's taking away sins and I'm growing in Christ-likeness. I know that he's working in me. Because no one else came to take away sins. Only he came to take away sins. And so by reminding us of the work of Christ, what he did in this manner, John encourages us. By way of reminder, he gives us one reason why we can know that we are indeed in him we are indeed following our Lord. The second reminder that righteousness is the fruit of abiding in the righteous one follows from the simple fact that he is the righteous one. Now remember again the words of verse 28, the central command here in, in our larger context. John says, And now, little children, abide in him. And recall again that here in this command, John is simply calling upon the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples when he was with them in the upper room. He taught them to abide in me. Abide in me, he said, as a branch abides in the vine. And what follows from this imagery and this illustration is that just as a branch that is in a vine produces fruit that is consistent with that vine, so too, those who abide in Christ produce the fruit of righteousness in their lives because, what's the logic? He is the righteous one. 
This is a point of emphasis in John's letter. We saw it at the, in the first verse of chapter 2 when he said that we have an advocate with the Father. He named him Jesus Christ the righteous. And at the end of chapter 2 again, he reminded us that we know that he is righteous. Moreover, he has told us that through hope we purify ourselves as he is pure. So here the statement that he is righteous in verse 7 provides the logical basis for John's call for us to practice righteousness by abiding in him. He says no one who abides in him, in verse 6 and 7, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. We practice righteousness by abiding in Christ, not by being so disciplined that we just do such a great job of it, not by being so strong within ourselves, but by depending upon the one who is strong in himself, the one who is by his very nature righteous in perfection. He is perfectly righteous. And so by abiding in him, in the ways that John has taught us to abide in him, by holding fast his word and letting his word abide in us, and by trusting in the spirit of Christ that Christ has caused to abide in us, in this way we abide in him and he produces righteousness within us. And so when we see those things, when we see those evidences in our lives, we know and are encouraged that he is working in us and that we are in him. It is a mark, a peculiar mark of the Christian life that Christians practice righteousness because Christians are those who abide in the one who is righteous. And then there's this third reminder. The third reminder is simply this, that righteousness is evidence that we are born of God. He goes on to say in verse 8 at the beginning, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Again, in verses 9 through 10, John writes, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here, we're going to be helped if we think about the father-son relationship the way that people at this time thought about the father-son relationship. In our modern day, we tend to think primarily in terms of biology. I am my father's son because I am biologically descended from him. But in the ancient mind, in, in the mind of Israelites, in the mind of John, the primary sign that someone was uh, a son of someone else is in their character. They act like their father. And this gave rise to all kinds of uh, jokes and idioms. If you wanted to make fun of somebody, you'd say he's a son of worthlessness. Well, why? Well, he's such a worthless guy. Well, this explains it. His dad must have been Mr. Worthlessness, you see. The idea is simple. A person acts like his father. And so, if we are marked by the practice of righteousness, that is a sign that we have been born of God. It's a sign that God is our Heavenly Father. We, saw, we can see that even in Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches his disciples that they ought to 
be merciful. Why? For their heavenly Father shows mercy to those who are just and unjust. He sends rain. Then you'd be children of your heavenly Father, Jesus teaches. You're acting like God. That's what children of God do. Those, on the other hand, who make a practice of sin are doing the very thing that the devil has been doing from the beginning. That's what John here declares. And again, as so many of the things he teaches, it is drawn from the teaching of Jesus himself. For Jesus, in John chapter 8, when he was confronted by the religious leaders in Israel, challenged them, challenged them not to rely on their physical ancestry, their physical relationship to Abraham, but rather, accusing them, he said, you know who you are? You're sons of your father, the devil. There in John 8, verse 44 and 45, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. How could Jesus say that? Because they made a practice of sinning. As he went on to say, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. See, in that particular context, the religious leaders rejected the truth that Jesus taught. And in that way, they were simply showing their love for and affinity for lies and deceit and those things which are not true. And in that, they were simply acting like their father, Jesus says, the devil. They were children of him. We ought not to be like that. We ought not to make a practice of sinning as the settled pattern of our life. You can see how settled the devil is in it. He has been sinning from the very beginning. From that moment we catch a first glimpse of him in the garden, and even before that, he comes as a deceiver, he comes as a liar, he comes as a murderer. And all the way through Scripture, it's what we see as his settled pattern of life. People who commit themselves to that way of life are showing to whom they belong. But those who make a practice of righteousness in the way that I've already set forward by confessing and repenting and trusting and holding fast God's word, putting their faith in Christ and loving one another, they are the ones who are making a practice of righteousness. And if that describes us, however imperfectly, then we can know we've been born of God. We indeed are children of God. That's what John's saying. He's not saying, thou shalt make a practice of righteousness. He's saying, this is evidence of a reality in your life. He's presenting it as evidence, not commanding it, because it doesn't flow from a command that we simply do in our great strength and effort. It flows from these realities, from abiding in Christ. The only command here is abide in Christ. It flows from what God does in our lives. Well, think about it this way. How many of you caused yourselves to be born? Can you cause yourself to be born again? No, by no means. Now, how many of you have caused yourself to be saved? You can't do it. The Lord is the one who did it in you 
causing you to believe, giving you what you needed to come to him in faith. How many of you can accomplish your sanctification, can through your own strength and your own strength alone keep yourself in the love of God? None of you. Not me either. We can't do it in our own power, but we don't need to. The only thing we're commanded to do in this text is to abide in him, to keep trusting, to keep following the pattern he's set before us, to remain in him, to hold fast his word, and to trust in the spirit whom he has given us. This is the way in which we make a practice of righteousness by doing the things that naturally lead to, those, to, to, to righteousness, by abiding in the vine from whom that fruit comes. Now, why is this an encouragement? Why should this encourage us? Why would it encourage John's initial hearers? Well, here's the reason. We live in a world, as John lived, where people would have us believe that things that we know to be righteous based on God's word are not, in fact, righteous. Some years ago, not long ago, I remember watching a senator interview and question a prospective nominee for a cabinet position in government. And he asked the man whether he believed that a person who did not believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior would spend an eternity in hell. He knew this man to be an evangelical Christian. The man scratched his head and struggled to understand what this had to do with the job he was seeking. But the reasoning was clear. This senator wanted to paint a picture. He wanted to present this man before the watching world as one who is a bigot, as one who is, in his estimation, unrighteous and judgmental. And that's the, world, the way the world thinks about us. They would tell us the things that you know to be righteous and you think to be righteous, that's not righteousness at all. And with each passing year, it becomes worse and worse. There was a day in our country where the things that the broader world regarded as good and right were generally consistent with the things that the Bible taught to be good and right. But those days are quickly passing and perhaps are long gone. Nowadays, Christians are viewed as evil and bigoted. And there's always this temptation to think, maybe they're right. In fact, one of their chief tactics is that they will tell us, you're not being very Christ-like. He taught that you should love, that you should not judge. If you have not heard that argument, you will certainly hear it. It's a, obviously a very watered-down argument. It's a very selective presentation of what Jesus taught, for he certainly taught a great deal about judgment and presented himself as the one who would ultimately render a final judgment upon the living and the dead. Of course, what he was condemning was hypocritical judgmentalism, the hypocrisy that was typical of the Pharisees. Nevertheless, he did call his disciples to follow him and to embrace a pattern of life that he demonstrated in his own life. And if we do that, if we commit ourselves to that way, the world will say, look at those evil people. And we need to know, and we need to be encouraged, that that's not the evaluation that matters. 
The evaluation that matters is the one that comes from our Heavenly Father who says, you are righteous. My son is righteous. Not in a matter of degree, but in the matter of quality. That is the righteousness that you pursue and that you practice. It's the righteousness that he practiced. When we see, when we live with humility, we know he lived with humility. When we serve the needs of others, we know and can be reminded he served the needs of others. When we love one another, we know and can be reminded that he chiefly demonstrated what it means to love by giving his life as a sacrifice for us. And so we know that whatever the world might say about us, our Heavenly Father says something quite different. This is why these words for us should not be bleak. They should rather be of great encouragement because they show us who we are in Christ and they remind us that the reason why we are able to be practitioners of righteousness, albeit imperfectly, is because he is the one who strengthens us all the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed make us to live as children of yours. Make us to reflect who you are in your nature. Make us to be practitioners of righteousness, but never in such a way where we become self-righteous, thinking that it's by our righteousness that we keep ourselves in a relationship with you. For we know, O oh Lord, that the righteousness that we need, the righteousness that you recognize in us, does not come from us, but comes from your Son. It comes to us by faith in him. So, Lord, we pray that you would make us like him and conform us to his image in a way where we live humbly as he did, and with love as he did, and with grace toward others, with kindness, with endurance and with perfect patience in everything. These things we pray, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.